Okay, everyone, so uh, welcome back again. Uh, and we're going to carry on with these exciting suttas. It's good weather for doing meditation and sutta readings, yeah? Kind of especially nice when it's rainy outside. Uh, so uh, uh, just to very briefly, just to just say a few things about what I was talking about yesterday, because uh, it's important to get these things in the right way, to grasp them in the right way. And a lot of these things can be quite challenging. And uh, uh, when we regard some of these challenging things in the suttas, it's important to remember that these things are meant for contemplation and for reflection. They're not meant to be just taken on board uh, as an act of will or anything like that. Uh, because uh, it is almost like doing violence to oneself. If you take these things on, just I'm going to take it on board. And that is, I'm going to live myself accordingly because the Buddha said this is true. Yeah, no. grit your teeth, etc. And that is a dangerous way of, of uh, looking at the Buddhist worldview. Uh, the purpose here is to reflect on it, uh, to find out whether it makes sense. Yeah, is, it, is there some truth to this? Uh, and then gradually either accept it or if you can't accept it, well, then you have to reject it, obviously. Uh, but that's kind of the purpose here, so that we kind of gradually... Uh, align our view, our outlook with the way the Buddha was seeing the world. That is the purpose of these things. Uh, and not to kind of use it as an act of violence towards ourselves or anyone else. Uh, because uh, sometimes people take these things, I think, slightly in the wrong way. Uh, so uh, just to kind of give you that uh, perspective, uh, so you treat these things with a, a kind of care and uh, gradual acceptance of these uh, views. Uh, and now I'm going to continue a little bit. It's going to be more about the kind of Buddhist worldview and the way of thinking about the world. Uh, all of these things ultimately leading to meditation. Yeah? All of these things uh, ultimately leading to positive mental states. That's the purpose of these things. And the next sutta here, which comes after the one we were looking at yesterday, is called known as the Atta Danda Sutta in Pali. And taking up arms is uh, the translation by... Uh, Bhante Sujato, uh, it comes on page 15, I think it is. Uh, is that right? Yeah, page 15. And then it carries on on the next page afterwards. Uh. And this is another sutta in the uh, Attaka Vaga of the Sutta Nipata, this uh, uh, chapter of eights. And uh, this particular sutta is another one of these uh, autobiographical suttas uh, where the Buddha is thinking about his own life before his awakening. Uh, and the sort of things that uh, made him go forth and become a monastic and leave the world behind. Uh, yeah? And these are always very interesting because uh, it's kind of, it shows you the kind of way of thinking about the world that leads you onwards on the path, leads you inwards, leads you to kind of the um, inner, uh, uh, getting access to the inner world rather than the world outside. Uh. So these are very, to my mind, very interesting things. Uh, and they uh, show us how the Buddha himself was thinking about these things. Uh. But taking up arms, atta danda, danda, Pali word actually means stick, that's the meaning of it. Uh. And uh, just as in English you use the word stick, it also has the meaning of punishment, yeah? You give someone stick, <laughs> you punish them. Uh. And in the same way, Pali word has the idea of stick and punishment, etc., uh, etc. Et yeah, he has taking up arms, I think arms is maybe... It's, a, it's one kind of viewpoint of this, but I think it's a bit broader than that. It's about kind of the general punishment and violence and kind of, you know, in a fairly broad sense of the term. 
and uh, we shall see that this actually applies quite well in that broad sense as we go through this particular sutta. So this again is how the Buddha was thinking before his awakening, right? The Buddha to be his outlook, what made him go forth. So quite exciting, I would say. So let's see what, he, what the Buddha has to say here. Thinking back at his time before his awakening here. And uh, this is how it goes. Peril stems from those who take up arms yeah, or take up violence or take up conflict or take up uh, uh, punishment. Just look at people in conflict. I shall extol how I came to be stirred with a sense of urgency. I saw this population flounder like a fish in a little puddle. Seeing them fight each other, fear came upon me. The world around was hollow. All directions were in turmoil. Wanting a home for myself, I saw nowhere unsettled. But even in the settlement, they fight. Seeing that, I grew uneasy. Then I saw a dart there, so hard to see, stuck in the heart. When stuck by that dart, you run about in all directions. But when that same dart has been plucked out, you neither run about nor sink down. So let's stop there. This, this sutta is actually divided into kind of three parts. And the first part is the part I've just been reading out, which is really about the view of the world, how to see the world in a certain way. And then once you have that right view, then comes the uh, effort, yeah, the, uh, the path that you have to follow to, that, that comes as a consequence of that view, just like the Noble Eightfold Path, right view, then comes all the actions. And then finally, the last part of these uh, verses, uh, this poem, are about the person who is freed. Yeah, the arahant, the result of practicing the path. So kind of standard format, view, practice, and then kind of the final result of the practice coming towards the end. So let's have a look at the, this view, first of all, these first verses here. So um, uh, peril stems from, from conflict. Yeah? Peril stems from violence. Peril stems from punishment. Just look at people in conflict or at war or meda guys like conflict or war, something like that. Yeah, the Buddha is seeing the world, he's seeing people. And as he looks around, what he sees is that everyone, some, everyone is in conflict. Not all the time, not in every place, but at some point and some time, everyone has, uh, there is a degree of conflict. It's always residing within us, uh, always waiting to come out. Uh, and there is no space in this world that is free from these things. And then he says, and this is what is interesting about this, uh, yeah, I shall teach you about this, uh, because this is how he was stirred with a sense of urgency. Uh, this is how he was stirred to practice the path, to give up the home life, etc., etc. Uh, so... Interesting, yeah. I saw the population flounder like a fish in a little puddle. Yeah, yeah and um, this is uh, this fish in a little puddle is a kind of a really nice simile here for what the world is like. Yeah. The world is like a puddle. Yeah, and the uh, the more interconnected the world is, the shorter the distances are. The world seems very small these days. It's very easy to move around, to get around. And wherever you look in the world, you see basically the same thing. 
humanity isn't any different whether you go to one country or another one. The same defilements, the same things that drive us, the same things that make us do the same stupid things is everywhere. Yeah. So you can see this fish in this little puddle. We are all in this little puddle. And you're floundering like a fish. The fish is kind of thrashing about, trying to escape from this puddle. But there is no escape. There is no moving out of this world. As long as we are on this planet, as long as we are part of this world, there isn't any way you can go to escape. That is not how you escape. There is an alternative path. And that path, of course, is going within rather than going without. It is without that the problem exists. It doesn't matter where you go. There is no solution in that world. There is no perfect system of governance that ensures that there is no conflict. Such a thing doesn't exist. And humanity is famous for trying to create utopias. Yeah? We try to create the perfect political system. And usually when we think we have the perfect system, it turns out to be a disaster. This is kind of humanity, right? Marxism, yeah, Marxism. Okay, finally we found the solution to all the problems. And then they try to implement it, and when it, in its implementation it turns out to be disastrous. And of course the reason is, the reason why there is no perfect system of government, the reason why utopia is impossible, is because of the defilements of people. Whatever we create in the world, whenever we have a system of governance, it gets corrupted by the defilements of people. It doesn't matter what, we, how, what kind of system we create. And that's kind of unpleasant, isn't it? When you think about that, it means that we're always playing catch-up. Yeah, we're always playing catch-up. We're always trying to somehow, you know, correct for the flaws that always come back into the system. And it's kind of, you don't want to, after a while, you just don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. You just want to withdraw from the whole thing. And... Uh, and, and this is kind of the outcome of seeing the world in this way, that there is no escape from this floundering and thrashing about in this little pond of ours, which is the world around us. So you see this, you see people fighting each other, yeah? And then the Buddha says, fear came upon me. This is the Buddha to be. This is kind of the greatest spiritual genius uh, in human, uh, recorded human history. Uh, yeah? Fear came upon me. Baya is the Pali word. And it kind of literally means fear or seeing danger or something like that. Uh, and uh, because he understands that there is no escape in that world. Uh, it's kind of powerful. Uh, when the Buddha to be has fear, well, maybe there is grounds for being a little bit concerned. Uh, yeah? The world around was hollow, all directions were in turmoil. Uh, this idea of hollowness. Yeah, asaro is the Pali here. And this is this idea that there is nothing in the world you can really grasp onto. There's nothing in the world that is solid, that is always there, that is always going to sustain you in one way or another. There is no refuge in that world. There is no place you can go and you can feel safe. There is no cave you can hide in yeah, and kind of get away from everything. It doesn't work like that. In the same way as there is no core in human beings, there is no kind of final refuge uh, in, in finding a sense of self. In the same way, there is no refuge in that world. There is no place where things are not hollow. Everything is hollow. Everything is always changing. When there is no essence in things, it means that they're always changing. Yeah, they're always moving about. They depend on cause and conditions. And when the cause and conditions are wrong, when they kind of come together in the wrong way, then 
the violence erupts, the problems erupt, change erupts. And so human history always repeats itself. Yeah, there is that old saying, famous saying, that if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it or something to that effect. But even if you know your history, you're still going to repeat it. <laughs> yeah, because this is what we do, right? So uh, it's, it's kind of problematic. <clears throat> so the Buddha sees the hollowness of the world, all directions in, in turmoil, wanting a home for myself. I saw nowhere unsettled. A home is the idea of a place where you are safe. Yeah? That's kind of the idea. That's why people have a house. Because you can lock the door, you can, this is our space, this is where we can enjoy ourselves, keep the world out for a while. Yeah? And this is, so the home is kind of the closest you come to a place of security in the world. That's why everyone wants to have a home for themselves. But actually, even that home is not really safe in the longer run. Even that home is going to be uncertain. And you know, sometimes you, you know, one of the things you see here in Western Australia is people, sometimes people's homes burn down yeah, because of the bushfire danger and these kind of things. And people grieve and they lament. Everything is gone because this is your refuge. This is your safety in the world. Even that safety wasn't as safe as you thought it might be. There is no place. That is not the place where you find a home in the world because those homes, nowhere is unsettled. And unsettled here seems to be a metaphor for unsettled by impermanence, unsettled by suffering. Yeah? Everything is bound up with these, uh, 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 the nature of samsaric existence. So where do we find a home then? And this is one of those beautiful sayings that you sometimes hear when you hear the kind of the great uh, masters, the great teachers in the world, the great meditators. Uh, and they say the home is to be found within. Yeah, this is... Um, uh, one of those famous uh, Anjan Shah sayings where he says that the real home is to be found within, within si- inside uh, because that is where you find a real refuge. Uh, when you go within yourself, you let go of that world outside. Uh, you go into a space that is entirely your own when no one else has access. Uh, well, that is where you are free from the turmoil, turmoil of the world. Uh, that is where you find that... Uh, uh, refuge, and this is why, precisely why the Buddha, when you go to the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he says, uh, "The four Satipatthanas, uh, that is your refuge. Uh, that is where you are an island unto yourself. Uh, yeah, find, be your own refuge. Don't take a refuge outside. Let the Dhamma be your refuge. And the Dhamma here, of course, is expressed through that meditation practice, finding the refuge within, uh, because there you are untouched. When you go deep into your breath meditation." Uh, and you let go of the world outside, uh, you are liberated from that uncertainty, uh, at least temporarily, uh, and then you have to come back later on. Uh, that is the real refuge. Uh, and this is why uh, the Buddhist teachings, uh, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, provide this thing for us uh, where we can be free from the problems of the world. Uh, first, temporarily, ultimately, in the end, finally and completely. Uh, and the Buddha says, but even in their settlement, they fight. So even if you, whenever you find your home, you still fight. And seeing that, I grew uneasy. Uneasy. Not sure if that's the, it's a bit, little bit strange translation. The Pali word is arati. Arati really means like um, discontent, yeah, or, or fed up, or you kind of push, you push away the whole world. I think uneasy is a little bit weak there, personally. Not sure exactly why he has chosen that translation. Yeah, so you see the kind of uh, 
wherever people settle down, they still fight. You know, people fight within families, they fight within the village, within society, between nations, in all kind of levels. Sometimes we fight with ourselves, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the worst one, when you don't really like yourself and you have a kind of, you are upset with yourself. So this, kind of, this is always going on. And so this is kind of the world for us. The world is always uncertain, always moving, always shifting from one thing to another one. And of course, the fact that things are always shifting is very unpleasant because we want to have things we can hold on to. Our very sense of self, the fact that we feel that we exist in a certain way, demands that there is things in the world that we can grasp, grasp onto. The sense of self kind of leeches into the world and says, I want permanence in the world because the world is an extension of the self. Why is that? Well, because the sense of self within that feeling we have also relies on external phenomena. Yeah? Your feeling for who you are relies on your relationship with other people, your position in a family, your position in the company, your position in society. Yeah, this is kind of the ego in the world. Sense of self relies on our feeling of ownership in the world. The sense of self is not just an internal thing, it also depends on external things. And for this reason, we want permanence in the world, because if things in the world are impermanent, our very sense of self is threatened by that impermanence. So we, we want impermanence, but the world isn't like that. The world goes completely against the way we want things to be. And this is why it is so unpleasant. And that impermanence, sometimes we think, well, it's just that, you know, we understand impermanence. We just need to see it more deeply. But actually, we don't really understand impermanence. And this is why we grieve and we get sad and we despair when things do change. What do you, when you see the war in Ukraine, what do you feel? Do you feel, this is terrible? Or do you feel, yeah, I expected that? Which one do you feel? If you feel, I expected that, well, that's, that's when you have really understood impermanence. If you feel, oh, no and you start grieving and lamenting, well, that's when you haven't fully got it yet, probably. So the world is just very unstable, and there's all these things happening under the surface that we can't really see, yeah? All these currents, uh, cause and conditions happening, and suddenly they come together, and they erupt into a big, massive impermanence that can be like an earthquake, for example. It builds up tension, builds up tension, builds up tension. And you can't see that. It's under the surface. And all impermanence is a bit like that. And then eventually, all of these tensions kind of come together and erupt in a massive earthquake. And before you know it, all of California is kind of into the ocean, into the Pacific. And then people lament and they grieve, obviously. So one of the ways that I kind of like to think of the idea of impermanence is as if the, it's like the ground under, underneath our feet is always shaking a little bit, always moving. And sometimes the shaking gets more powerful, and when it gets really powerful, you fall over. Yeah, because you, you can't stand on the ground, which is always moving around. And uh, our life is a bit like that. It's always shaking. There's no way you can stand with safety. There's no way you can actually rest and say, oh, okay, now I can rest, yeah? There is no rest because things are always moving, always changing. And finally, when you settle down, when you think you can rest, when you think you can rely on something, the earthquake comes and you bang, you lose your balance, you fall over. And of course, you hurt yourself as a consequence. That's kind of unpleasant to think about, isn't it? There's nowhere to hold on to. There's nowhere to stand. 
but this is kind of the Buddhist idea. And when you see that, there is grounds for being concerned. Yeah? I've got to find my refuge somewhere else. And this is exactly what the Buddha-to-be is discovering through these verses here. Yeah? <clears throat> so uh, when uh, I grew discontent, dissatisfied with the world, and then I saw a dart there, uh, so hard to see, stuck in the heart. Yeah, the dart stuck in the heart, of course, is craving according to the suttas. Uh, yeah? And he understands, he can see that the cause for all, all the problems in the world, uh, all the things that are going on, actually, it is craving that is the cause for these things. Uh, because craving here has to do with, well, primarily it has to do with craving for the external things in the world, that sensory world. This is one of the important cravings. And of course, that leads to conflict because we are always, as I said before, craving for the same things. Yeah? So craving is a problem, but also the craving, which is the sense of self. That is a deeper kind of craving. Yeah? But that craving too leads to these kind of problems. Because we have different senses of self, we clash with each other, and as I mentioned, the sense of self kind of leeches into the world anyway. And then, so that's the deeper one, the deeper craving that causes all of this fighting in the world, all these problems in the world. So to see that is quite hard, yeah? And the reason why it is so hard is because very often we think of craving as our, as our friend. Sometimes we identify with craving. I am craving. This is actually found in the suttas. In the, I think, Chachaka Sutta, Majjhima 146, I think it is, something like that. And uh, the six sets of sixes, where the Buddha specifically says that you identify with craving sometimes. Why do we identify with craving? Because we identify with the doer. Yeah, I am the doer. You know what I mean? Yeah, do you ever feel like the doer? Do you feel like you are expressing yourself when you do things? I'm being creative. Yeah, I'm kind of making things in the world. And we put creative people on a pedestal. And there is some reason why we should do that. Yeah, because they often create beautiful things that we can enjoy. But in the end, that creative activity is part of the problem. It's part of the craving, part of identifying with doing. And as long as you identify with doing, it means that craving also is going to seem attractive to you because craving is what makes you do. These are very closely related to each other, craving and doing. So if you identify as the doer, craving is going to seem, seem positive to you to some extent. They're linked to each other. And that makes it very hard to see. If you identify with something, it's very hard to see it as the problem because it means you are part of the problem. Yeah. I am part of the problem. What do you mean I'm part of the problem? I'm not part of the problem. I'm part of the solution, surely. No, you're not. Yeah, this is kind of the thing here. That sense of identity actually is part of the problem. This is why it is very hard to see. It goes against the entire direction of uh, our delusion and our sense of self and all of these kind of things. So he saw the dart there, the dart of craving, this very profound thing that relates to the very sense of self of who we are, as a, who we think we are, I should say, as human beings. And then he says, when stuck by that dart, you run about in all directions. Yeah, that's true. You run about in the world. We do this, we do that. We try to sort out you know, things in the world. But then when you pull out that very same dart, you neither run about nor sink down. 
You're no longer driven. You're no longer the slave to craving. Tanhadasa, as it's called in the suttas. You're no longer the slave to craving. So you don't run about anymore. You can relax. You can sit down. You can meditate. And you're peaceful straight away in your meditation. Because craving doesn't have any power over you anymore. Nor do you sink down. Sink down is like the opposite. Yeah? You get sad and dejected by the world because... Again, the world seems, sometimes the world seems terrible, out of control, and then you get sad about it. But of course, this is the Buddhist path, is actually going beyond both of these things. It is going in a different direction entirely, a perpendicular direction. If you think of the world as this big kind of sphere stretching out, yeah, kind of looking out to the horizon, then what we do, we go perpendicular to that, in or out of this yeah, away from that whole thing. Usually we travel in this plane, we stay in that plane. Now we go in a, 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 a different direction altogether. Yeah. So this is what the Buddha sees. Yeah? He sees the problem in the world, the unreliability in the world. Uh, and then from that seeing, from that understanding, he then starts to practice. And so the next part, the next verses here, uh, they are... Uh, a kind of poetical expression of the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. So um, I'll read through that and then kind of we can talk about it, not in much detail because it's really quite, we know about most of these things already, but I'll have a quick look at some of the aspects of this. <clears throat> so he starts off by saying that whatever attachments there are in the world, don't pursue them having pierced through essential pleasures, sensual objects in every way, train yourself for quenching. Be truthful, not rude, free of deceit and rid of slander. Without anger, a sage would cross over the evils of greed and avarice. Prevail over sleepiness, sloth and drowsiness. Don't abide in negligence. A person intent on quenching would not stand for arrogance. Don't be led into lying or get caught up in fondness for form. Completely understand conceit and desist from hasty conduct. Don't relish the old or welcome the new. Don't grieve for what is running out or get attached to things that pull you in. Greed, I say, is the great flood and longing is the current, the basis, the compulsion, the swamp of sensuality so hard to get past. So that is really the path. And then the last part of the verses here are about the sage, the arahant, who has practiced that path all the way. So let's have a quick look at these verses uh, on the path. So we have already looked at some of these things in quite a bit of detail, whatever attachments there are in the world. Yeah? Uh, Gaditani, gadita, these are things that you hold on to. These are the things in the world rather than kind of the personal attachment. These are the things we attach to in the world. Whatever things there are in the world, don't pursue them. Yeah? We have already looked at this in great detail about you don't really own these things anyway, so what's the point in pursuing too much of these things? And having understood all of the essential pleasures, you train yourself for quenching. Quenching here is nibbana, yeah, it's the extinguishment, the coolness within where you don't kind of run around anymore. Be truthful, not rude. 
apagabo, rude, impudent, impudent, whatever. Yeah. Um, free of deceit, yeah. And this is one of these kind of nice uh, things that you see sometimes in the suttas, the idea of uh, being kind of honest about things, uh, not being deceitful, showing yourself as you are. Uh, one of the things you find is that the idea that if you try to pretend that you are something that you are not, uh, then your teacher cannot really help you, yeah? You have to show yourself as you are, and then you can get some good advice maybe, okay, this is what you should be doing, yeah? And we should just kind of be honest about things in the world. Uh, there's too much pretense, I think, sometimes in the world. Uh, people trying to be what they're not. Uh, we pretend to be happy when actually we're miserable. Uh, you ask someone, how are you today? They always say, I'm good. Actually, that's not true, right? <laughs> they're not always good. Sometimes they're absolutely miserable. Still, they smile back and say, I'm good. It doesn't mean anything. And sometimes it is, it's nice if we are, can be more honest about what life is like. And pre- instead of everyone pretending to everyone else that things are much better than it actually is. This is kind of the world for you. It's life for you in a nutshell. But it isn't always that great. And sometimes there is a lot of pain. Sometimes there is pain in life. Sometimes we are happy, but sometimes there is pain. So just uh, seeing life more clearly, uh, not thinking that the kind of the movie stars or the wealthy people you see on TV or whatever, you, sometimes they look like they're happy, but actually uh, we know deep down, we know very well that these are just superficial things. Uh, the reality is actually very, very different from any of these people. Somehow it's just all a game. It's like a show. It's like something we, the reality, this is not what life actually is like. Yeah? And uh, of course we deceive each other by living this game, by living this theater. The world is a stage, as they say, and no one is really kind of seeing life as it actually is. And when you are young, you get pulled in by these things. When you're young, you kind of think the glamour and the kind of these things is great, not really understanding how hollow it is and how little wisdom there is in these things. And yet somehow we get deceived by this. It's kind of crazy sometimes. And this is why sometimes you hear this idea that uh, in the Siddha that if you are an actor, uh, you can go, end up going to a very bad destination in your next life as a, as a reason. And of course the reason is because we are deluding the world. Uh, yeah? This kind of glamour stuff with people who look very beautiful and, look, and it's, you realize how empty it, it all is. All the facade, it's like a movie set yeah? where the facade is there but there's nothing behind. Uh, and the kind of, much of the world is a bit like that. Uh. Sometimes honesty, yeah, reality, down to earth, uh, is actually very, very useful in this, in this world. Uh, and then we are able to react and live in a wiser way because we deal with reality rather than dealing with fantasy. Yeah. So you are free of deceit, uh, rid of slander, uh, without anger, yeah? a sage would cross over the evils of greed and avarice. Uh, yeah. The evils, the papa is the Pali word, like the badness of greed and avarice. You know, and sometimes in the world we hear this kind of crazy slogans, greed is good. But in Buddhism, greed is bad. Yeah, it's really negative. It leads to all the, all the troubles in the world, basically. That's what it leads to. Prevail over sleepiness, sloth and drowsiness. And... Uh, uh, how do we prevail over these things? It can be, of course, it, of course, you know, you find that right amount of sleep. We don't try to sleep neither too little nor too much. You find this amount of sleep where your mindfulness kind of reaches the peak, where you are well rested, uh, but you don't sleep so much that you feel groggy afterwards. Uh, 
find that nice balance. In the modern world, people generally sleep too little. Uh, it's kind of well known because we use too many devices, too many things, uh, and our mind is always kind of alert and we don't sleep properly. And I think this is considered one of the uh, big problems in modern society. So make sure you don't go make that mistake. Yeah? Find that nice balance. Uh, but in the end, the way to overcome sleepiness and these things really has to do with overcoming, again, some of the sensory world. Yeah? The sensory world, as we saw before, makes you weak. It makes you tired because of the restlessness and the agitation that that sensory world always uh, brings with it. Uh, anger as well, if you have ill will, that too is very problematic. So developing metta and kindness, uh, all of these things, actually helps you overcome that sleepiness and tiredness. Uh, when you look at the five hindrances, the first two are by far the most important ones. Uh, and the rest are almost just a consequence of the first two hindrances. Uh, <clears throat> don't abide in negligence. Uh, yeah? Negligence means you're not careful, you don't really think about things properly. Negligence or uh, heed heedlessness or whatever you want to call it. Uh, a person who is intent on quenching, uh, again, Nibbana, uh, would not stand for arrogance or would not be arrogant. Yeah, the Pali word is atimana. Atimana means like proud or conceited or arrogant, those kind of mental states. Yeah? So if you want to quench yourself, you want to reduce your ego a little bit. Reducing your ego is good. It's nice to reduce the ego. You feel less vulnerable in the world when you have less ego because the ego is like a big target for the world. It's very easy to be shot down if you have a big ego. Having a small ego is kind of great, yeah? There's nothing really to worry about. You worry about your own life. You look after yourself. You don't try to control too much in the world. Don't be led into lying or get caught up in fondness for form. Form just means the external world, yeah? Everything around us. Completely understand conceit. Desist from hasty conduct. Desist from hasty conduct, yeah? Sometimes people like to be very impulsive. Yeah, let's be impulsive and do things, yeah? Because impulsive, you're kind of just expressing yourself on the spur of the moment. And of course, that can be nice because it kind of releases maybe. You don't have to think about things. It kind of is an easy way of living. But it's also very dangerous uh, to be too impulsive uh, because if those impulses are coming from a good place, it's okay. But sometimes the impulses come from not such a good place, from a slightly defiled place, from a place of greed or anger or ill will. And then the impulse is going to be problematic. So this is kind of an important thing in Buddhism. It's everything really, it's, things are not usually bad or good in themselves, but it is where you're coming from, what drives those things that make them good or bad. And the same thing with here being impulsive. Don't you know, be circumspect in everything you do. And when you're circumspect, that is where you are going to be practicing this life in the correct way. Yeah. Not to be tense or uptight either. It's always kind of a middle way, but uh, then you get it right. Uh. Don't relish the old or welcome the new. Don't grieve for what is running out or get attached to things that pull you in. Uh. This is the idea of not holding to the past, yeah, or not really looking to, towards the future. Those famous uh, verses in the Badekaratta Sutta, the uh, one auspicious night, Imagine Manikai 131, uh, beautiful sutta, the verses on an auspicious night, uh, which is uh, a very, uh, I would recommend you to have a look at if you don't know them already. Uh, and this is like a, um, 
kind of a, another way of talking about the same thing, yeah? Forget about the past, let go of the past. How do we let go of the past? Very often by forgiving the past. Because very often we think about the past because we are, you know, we are, sometimes it's because we think, well, in the past I was great, now I'm a failure. And of course you think about the past and you glorify yourself in light of the past. And I know many people, for example, they, when they stop working, yeah, you become a pensioner and then you think back to when you were at work and you were really successful and you can't really deal with becoming a pensioner. Yeah? Because now life is kind of empty, it's pointless. And that's a shame, right? That's a terrible thing. It's like your life really is caught up with this idea of status and the world and all of these kind of things. And it's not tied to the idea of living well. Because if your life is about living well, it doesn't really matter whether you're a pensioner or you are an employee in a company, whatever you are, that is what matters. So this is where you are tied to the past. You can't let go of the past. Or the sports person who is very successful and they have all these trophies, they have a cabinet full of trophies, yeah? And then after they retire, they always go looking at all the trophies attached to the past when you were successful. It's kind of a very common thing in human society. We hold on to these things. But no, if we live in the right way, then it's actually the future which is bright. Yeah? If anything, we should look to the future. If you live well and you live according to Dhamma, you live according to good conduct, your future is bright. Yeah? We're heading in the right direction. People are often affected by a lot of anxiety in the modern world. And of course, the idea of anxiety is that you're looking to the future with a sense of fear. You're worried about the future. That's really what anxiety is. Anxiety is a kind of fear, really. But this is one of the great benefits of practicing the Buddhist teachings. Actually, you start to become optimistic about the future because you are doing those things that will create a good future. So just thinking like that can already help reducing anxiety a little bit. It takes time, of course, because these are often very deeply ingrained habits. But as you live in this way, then you can overcome some of these problems. So you don't hold on to the past. The past is finished. Yeah? You, instead, you look to the present, but you also don't worry about the future because the, the, uh, the new or the things that come in, they again are not really also not where happiness is to be found. Happiness is to be found in the present, in our actions, in how we live now, not in kind of trying to figure out the future. So you do... Don't worry about the past, don't worry about the future, nor do you get attached to things in the present moment. Yeah? That's where you kind of find freedom. And this is the freedom of here. We're talking about, of course, very high people practice on a very high level, talking about the sages. Greed, I say, is the great flood. Yeah? The flood of greed going on and on and on. There is no end to it. And longing is the current of that flood. Uh, the basis, uh, the compulsion. Uh, we are compelled by this, yeah? Uh, uh, the swamp of sensuality so hard to get past. And uh, again, there's this idea of the world, yeah? Because we are so immersed in it. It's like a swamp, uh, sticky, difficult to get out of. Uh, because if you haven't got a vision of the alternative, you don't need, really even know that there is an alternative, uh, and if you don't know that there is, an alternate, there is an alternative, how can you even get started on this path? 
So in the beginning you have to have a bit of confidence and faith that this is possible. Then you have a little bit of insight into that alternative reality that is there yeah, to be reached, to be attained if you practice in the right way. And then you start to understand the swamp of sensuality. And gradually you come out of this swamp. But it's hard to get out of because it seems delightful, it seems good. And it's very sticky for that reason. But gradually, gradually you emerge from this. And this is what this is about. So, uh, let's go quickly into the very last part of this. And this is, now we're going to go into what it means to be basically an arahant. That's essentially what it is. There's lots of verses about how, what happens when you kind of emerge from all of this. So this is what the Buddha says, the sage never strays from the truth. The Brahman stands firm on the shore. Having given up everything, they are said to be at peace. They have truly known they are a knowledge master. Understanding the teaching, they are independent. They rightly proceed in the world, not coveting anything here. One who has crossed over sensuality here, the snare in the world so hard to get past, grieves not nor hopes. They have cut the strings, they are no longer bound. What came before, let wither away, and after, let there be nothing. And if you don't grasp at the middle, you will live at peace. One who has no sense of ownership in the whole realm of name and form, does not grieve for that which is not, they suffer no loss in the world. If you don't think of anything as belonging to yourself or others, not finding anything to be mine, you won't grieve thinking, I don't have it. Not bitter, not fawning, unstirred, everywhere even, when asked about one who is unshakable, I declare that that is the benefit. For the unstirred who understand there is no permanence, no performance of deeds. Desisting from instigation, they see sanctuary everywhere. The sage doesn't speak of themselves as being among superior, superiors, inferiors or equals. Peaceful, rid of stinginess, they neither take nor reject. So there you are, a very poetic expression of the arahant, the sage. Yeah? So this is kind of uh, where this whole path ends eventually. Let's just very quickly go through uh, some of these. I'm not going to stay too long with this because now we are kind of looking at some of the very loftiest aspects of the path. But uh, the sage never strays from the truth. Yeah? And this is kind of one of those beautiful things about when you, the more you practice the path, and when you come to the very end of the path, the idea of virtue becomes embedded in you. You become virtue. Your personality is virtuous. You cannot do bad things anymore. You cannot lie. Yeah, you become this kind of inherent, this blob of goodness walking around in the world. It's good to be a blob of goodness, right? <laughs> and this is kind of the arahant. And you, you cannot really do bad things anymore. It becomes impossible. So again, forget about crazy wisdom. Wisdom is expressed in your conduct. That is kind of the whole point of these things. 
if people do bad things, they are not, they're not an arahant, they're not awakened, as simple as that. So um, the Brahmin stands firm on the shore, yeah, there is no kind of walking back anymore, you are firm in what you're doing. Having given up everything, they are said to be at peace. It's kind of this very counterintuitive thing. To be at peace, you have to give up everything. That is only then that you find peace, when you don't hold on to anything in the world. And of course, it's kind of obvious when you understand how the Dhamma works. If everything is impermanent, if everything is unreliable, if everything is uncertain, you will never be at peace if you hold on to it. It is only by letting go completely, fully, finally of all external things, but also all the internal things that you can actually find peace. Yeah, they have truly known you are a knowledge master because you have seen the world uh, in, in, the, in the terms of the three characteristics. You have seen that which really matters in the world. Uh, and you, have, you are independent. Yeah, you, you have uh, understanding the teachings makes you independent in the world. I think one of those things that is often not kind of understood about the spiritual path is that if you want to be independent, practice the spiritual path. This is actually how you become free of all these bonds in the world. Because independence really resides in the mind. It doesn't really reside so much in the external things. It resides in your ability to act and react and to be who you think you should be within. That is the real independence. Yeah, you're no longer, no longer strings attached to your mind. There's no longer people are no longer able to manipulate you in the world because you're free of those strings and attachments by which other people can manipulate you. Nothing can manipulate you. You're free of those things. It's fascinating. You see some of the people in the world who are free in this way. You, you, you try to manipulate them. You're not going to succeed. Yeah? And you kind of... Uh, you have to give it up, either that or you get very frustrated trying to manipulate people who are not who are beyond manipulation. So they are independent, they think differently, they do things that they think is right in the world. Yeah, if they think that they should ordain bhikkhunis, then they ordain bhikkhunis because it's the right thing to do. Not really caring what the rest of the world says. If the rest of the world says that's a bad thing, you say, okay, that's your problem. Nothing to do with me, yeah? I'm going to do, do what, is, what is right. And this is kind of beautiful, yeah? This is an expression of that independence, the ability to be your own person, yeah? not to kind of follow along with the crowd, to be the black sheep. You're very happy to be the black sheep. Actually, it's all the other ones who are black. You are the white one, the one white sheep, yeah? Because you are pure. You know that your conduct is right. So you're happy to do things in this way, yeah? So you are independent, you rightly proceed in the world, not coveting, not desiring or wanting anything anywhere. You have crossed over sensuality, the snare in the world so hard to get past. You grieve not, nor do you have any hopes for the future. Yeah, there's nothing to hope for. What there is is only the happiness within right now in meditation practice. They've cut the strings, no longer bound. What came before, let wither away. Forget about the blooming past, doesn't matter anymore. And afterwards, let there be nothing. There's nothing in the future to look forward to because the real happiness is to be found in the present, right now, in meditation by letting go of everything. The future has become irrelevant. And nor do you grasp what is in the middle. You don't grasp anything in the here and now. And then, then you live at peace. 
You have no sense of ownership in the whole realm of name and form. And so what that means is that ownership is not just about external things. It's also about internal things. Yeah? I own my will. I own my consciousness. I own my sense of self within but even that you don't own. Even that you allow it to just be. You allow it to develop and take its own course. So name and form, we're here talking about everything. Everything within experience. That's really what it means. And experience includes everything in the whole world, right? So everything within experience, you no longer have any ownership for, all, for any of that. You don't grieve for that which is not. You don't grieve for a sense of self. You don't grieve for this I within that actually is this uh, thing you can never get hold of because it doesn't really exist in the first place. You don't grieve for that which is not. You don't grieve for the non-existent I within. There's suffering no loss in the world because when you don't own anything, you can't have any loss. Simple as that. And if you don't think of anything as belonging to yourself or others... Uh, not finding anything to be mine, you don't grieve, thinking, I don't have it. Not bitter, not fawning. Fawning here is really a bit like just being greedy, really. Uh, unstirred everywhere, even when asked about one who is unshakable, I declare that that is the benefit. Unshakable in the world, sturdy, like a mountaintop, nobody can do anything. You're just kind of steady in the world and you look at the world in amazement, uh, having seen the reality as it actually is. Uh, and of course, the point is, I, I don't know how you feel about it. It may seem alien sometimes. Yeah, what, what are these Arahans? They seem like some kind of different species, like Martians or something. Uh, yeah, how, can you, how can we even relate to these people? Uh, but of course, the reality is that it is the Arahans, or the ones who have seen... That is the normal condition. Seeing reality, understanding things as they actually are, just makes you feel normal. And it makes you kind of amazed at all the delusion you had beforehand. So this is not the strange state. The strange state is the state we have now. That is the strange state. That is the weird one. And once you emerge from that, you look back, you think, whoa, that was just weird to be trapped in that world in that way. I was just blind. Yeah, it's bleeding obvious it has to be this way. Of course there is no self. There never was one in the first place. Why was I even trapped by that idea? So we have to be careful here. It seems maybe weird from our point of view, precisely because of our delusion. But that is actually really the natural state. So be careful here not to kind of other the Arahant and think of them as weird. It sounds almost scary, you know, not having any attachments. Jeepers, what is this all about? But actually, that is the natural state. That is the state of freedom, of independence. That is the state where you can go into the bliss that probably many of you already have experienced to some extent at any time and far more deeply than you have ever experienced. So make sure you grab these things in the right way. Otherwise, we, uh, it will not seem attractive to you. For the unstirred who understand... There is no performance of deeds. Yeah? Performance of deeds here refers to the idea of creating a future. Uh, sankara, avidja, pachaya, sankara, from ignorance, the beginning of dependent origination, from ignorance or delusion comes the sankaras, the will, the activity by which we try to create a life for ourselves, try to create a world for ourselves. 
but you stop that creative activity because you're no longer interested in trying to create the world for yourself. So you don't perform those deeds by which you create your own life. Desisting from instigation, you don't instigate anything. You see sanctuary everywhere. Sanctuary is now, right here, because you don't need to create the future anymore. You have found that sense of stillness, sanctuary, right here, right now. The sage doesn't speak of themselves as being among superiors, inferiors, or, e or equals. And this is such a, again, one of these kind of profound Buddhist ideas, the idea of the three kinds of conceit. Yeah, you are neither superior nor are you inferior, nor are you equal. And it's kind of, it's one of these mind-boggling things. Yeah, why is that the case? What does that actually mean? Well, we can sort of get that we're not supposed to think of ourselves as superior because then you feel conceited, yeah, you treat others bad because you are better, you deserve better. It's like the idea of being entitled in the world, yeah. And a very common problem in the world, people have this superiority conceit. We can see that as problematic. We can see why inferiority conceit is problematic. Yeah, Because it makes you feel kind of bad. You think other people are better than you. That also is no good. So we live in a society where the ideal is to be that we're all, all equal. We're all equal before the law. We should all have equal opportunities. That's the ideal. Of course, society isn't quite like that. But that's the ideal anyway. And that's kind of a nice ideal as far as it goes. But then the Buddha comes along and takes it one step further. Even that equality is a conceit. Why is that? Because the idea of equality is based on the idea that there is some inherent me. I am in a certain way, and that I am, which is in a certain way, is roughly equal to the way you are in a certain way. But we are always changing. We're always moving about. We cannot really compare each other at all. Yeah? One day you are really nice and friendly with everyone. That day you are a bit superior compared to the kind of grumpy person who's saying bad things to everyone. Yeah? The next day it's turned the other way around. You are the grumpy one. The other person is the nice one. Then they are a bit superior. Because the way we measure inferiority and superiority in Buddhism is really by the sila of the person. If someone has very good sila, and this is why the people who are called the superior people in the world are the noble ones, because the noble ones are the only ones who have a steady sila, a steady morality. You cannot go back on the morality anymore. That's why these are called the sapurisa, sometimes translated as superior people. And before that, we're always moving around. One day you're better, another day you're worse. One day you're born in one country, another day you're born in another country. One day you are, one life you are a male, another life you are female. One life you are rich, one life you're poor, one life you're intelligent, one life you are stupid. <laughs> one life, we are everything of these things. We cannot really compare anymore after a while because you realize that it's always moving around, always changing. And that's a wonderful thing, not to compare each other at all. And in a sense, even though we are not equal in this way, in a deeper sense, we are very equal. Yeah? We are very equal in the sense that we are always, all, every one of us, we are changing, moving around in this world, changing from one form to another one, one mentality to another one. In that sense, we are deep, equal in a deeper sense. So we can all respect each other. We don't look down upon anyone. 
Sometimes people say, oh, you know, when I help others, I kind of look down upon them because you think you are superior if you help someone else. But no, that is the wrong way of thinking. You're not superior because in the past, you have been the one who, is helped, who was helped. In the future, you will be the one who is helped again. We're just changing positions all the time. There's nothing superior about being helpful. In fact, it's a privilege to be able to help others. It's a beautiful thing to be able to do. And then when it is your turn, you should receive that help from others with a sense of gratitude, not with a sense of feeling bad about being helped by others. It's very common in our society, people feel bad about being helped, as if that kind of puts you on a lower level or something. No, accept that with a sense of uh, uh, honor and accept of, uh, of just gratitude, yeah? Knowing that we're always swapping places in the world. And when we look upon each other in this way, it becomes beautiful because we see a human being everywhere. We never look down upon everyone else, anyone else, regardless of the status of who they are in the society. This is one of the beautiful outcomes of this sort of thinking that the Buddha is talking about here. So, uh, there's no superiors, inferiors, or equals. Peaceful, rid of stinginess. They neither take nor reject. Yeah, you come to the end of the path, there is no more taking, there is no more stinginess, no more holding on to anything, nor do you reject anything because you are just flowing on in the world, going with the flow of things, yeah, and you kind of accept things as they are, and there is no problem. And you are like the wage, uh, the uh, worker waiting for the wages. This is found in the, uh, the uh, uh, Theragata, I think the verses of Endobosariputta, in the verses of the elders, he says that uh, being an arahant is like a worker waiting for the wages. Yeah? You still live in the world. Uh, you are a teacher. And eventually you just uh, pass away, uh, parinibbana, and everything comes to an end. Anyway, there you are. This is this uh, beautiful verses of the Atta Danda Sutta. And uh, that is all for now. And we'll see you again. Have a nice lunch. See you again back at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Yeah.